This is Robert Clotworthy, the narrator of The Curse of Oak Island, and I have a question for you. Could it be that you are listening to The Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream? This is a top pocket find, mate, for sure. Hey, everybody. How you doing today? Uh, glad you're here with us. I am Jeff Freeman. I'm the host of the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream. And right over here, we have my co-host, Jack Campbell. Jack, how you doing today? I'm doing good, Jeff. Doing real good. I tell you what, it's a wonderful day out here today. It's warm. I'm so glad that the weather is finally finally starting to get nice. Uh, and uh, that's and I hope you guys are all staying healthy out there. I really do. Hey, I just wanted to mention real quick as we get started here. Uh, before I bring our wonderful special guest on today, uh, that if you're out watching out there on the YouTube side or anybody that goes out to the YouTube side and watches any of our videos, we appreciate it very much. If you would click that subscribe button that's down there, let us know how we're doing. Give us a thumbs up if you like our content, and uh, that way we know what to, uh, best how to serve you guys and, and bring up some good stuff for you in the future. If you turn on that notification bell, you'll get notified as soon as we go live or as soon as we have new content that we've put up uh, on the channel there. So we appreciate that very, very much. We really do. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank you all for coming here today. We have a very, very special guest returning for part two, Alessandra Nadovari. And uh, Alessandra is an author and she's done some wonderful books. And uh, we were, we did a, a back on, I think it was February 6th, we did part one with Alessandra and it was great. And we just ran out of time. As you guys know, I like to hold these shows to about two hours. Uh, so, that, you know, everybody gets a little answer after about two hours and it's hard to sit, but uh, uh, so I'd like to hold them to about two hours. And quite honestly, we just ran out of time. Uh, and Alessandra has so much to cover about new Ross, uh, some great people like Henry St. Clair, William Alexandra, Alexander going on and on and on. So, Hey, without further ado, I would like to go ahead and just bring on Alessandra Nadovari. Alessandra, how are you doing today? Well, I'm Kichi. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. I, I, I've been looking forward to having you on again so much because, it was so exciting and so much information that we covered last time and we just ran out of time. We didn't get to it all. So this yeah. has been uh, really, really nice to, uh, to have you come back and we appreciate it very, very much. Um, so, you know, as we get started, I know you're a, you're a acclaimed author. You've got several books and we can see them up there behind you on the, on your bookshelf. Uh, and yeah, those are, yeah, really good. I, I, uh, I really appreciate that very much. And we can talk about those as we go along. You can and talk about those if you'd like and bring those up, but, um, let's get started with, uh, James McQuiston, uh, Jim, and you, you just had an interview with him. I had an interview with him and what a great guy. I mean, yeah, it, it was informative and he's, he's done some books, uh, and, and especially the new book that he's done, Oak Island and New Ross. And I guess you guys talked about that. What do you uh, go ahead? Let's let's talk about James a little bit and roll into this. Well, uh, James McQuiston is one of the top theorists on Oak Island. Mm -hmm. He was on the Curse of Oak Island multiple times, and each time he returns, he brings something new to the table. And I would say that his latest contribution to the Oak Island mystery has to do something with Neuros and it's amazing. I don't know how many people in your audience have heard what James found, but he basically discovered late last year, I think it was like November or December, 2020, mm -hmm. that if you extend the left arm of Nolan's cross on Oak Island, 
it will take you inland and it will cross the back of our property in your house. So uh, I was, I just about fell off my chair when I read his email. <laughs> I know. Yeah, me too. I, I, know. I was I like, That's James, crazy. are you serious? Are you just seeing things? And he's like, no, I'm not seeing things. Steve Gattel <laughs> confirmed it. Yep. And uh, recently, Erin Helton also looked into that and she drew some really neat images. Um, she's really good with, with graphics. And I'm one of those people who needs to, who need to see, see things. Mm -hmm. before I can, you know, imagine it. And so she made that easy to see. And uh, so James's discovery is is both amazing, but it, it's one of those things where it opens more, more doors and more questions. So it seems that Nolan's Cross does point to Neuros, but we don't know why. Right. And if uh, there was something at Neuros that pointed back to Oak Island, because we know that you can reach Neuros uh, from the northern part of Nova Scotia, if you, let's say, sail into the Bay of Fundy, mm -hmm. right. and you find um, an Oak Island, there's actually an Oak Island there in the Bay of Fundy. And then if you look to the right of that Oak Island, you will find the mouth of Gaspero River. And if you follow Gaspero River, Inland, upstream, it will take you to the vicinity of Neuros. And once you're there, then maybe you see the sign that points you <laughs> to Oak <laughs> Island. So I was thinking that there must have been something at Neuros that pointed you back to Oak Island, depending on how you got to Neuros from the north or from the mm -hmm. south. And of course, the next question is, well, who did that? Who's responsible for it? And what did they have in mind? Why did they feel the need to set up this um, megalithic uh, directional marker <laughs> on Oak Island exactly. that will then point you to Neuros? So why, who, and of course, when, right? Mm -hmm. But I find that uh, James's discovery is also really good for the Oak Island team because what it proves and I, I am confident to say what it proves beyond any more doubt that Nolan's Cross is real. It's mm -hmm. not random cluster of boulders. Mr. Nolan made a true and innocent discovery when he mapped it. He was not the one who set it up. He was not the one who oriented it the way it's oriented. And so we can stop doubting Fred Nolan and yep. just accept that Nolan's Cross is real. And now we can actually actually get down to work and try to figure out why it's there and what it does. Yeah, we've we've talked about that several times. You know, I have personally talked about it several times about the fact that 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 cross that that Fred Nolan found, and he is a surveyor, master surveyor, and he did it the old way. Stephen's got his his GPS stick, and and uh, and. And uh, Fred Nolan, of course, he went out and did it. The and, and I'm sure that I'm not taking any way thing, anything away from Stephen. I'm sure he knows how to do it the other way, too, besides using that stick, because he went to school for all that. But yes. um, but anyway, we know that that Nolan's cross was laid out by Fred and he found it he, and it, it. The lines are perfect. And yeah. so, you know, and then on going on with that, you know, not not only now do we learn that the the cross that the, the, uh, the horizontal cross part of it points to new Ross. Mm -hmm. But, and again, we had Corey and mole and Christopher Morford on, and they were talking about how you take from Versailles and France and that line comes all the way to Oak Island. Oak so, Island. 
it's it's crazy how this stuff comes to play like that. And and while I'm on that subject, I would just want to say too that we have Corian and Christopher coming on uh, with us on May 8th, and you're going to be joining me as my co-host that day. And I'm really excited yeah. about that. That's going to be awesome. Um, but so you know, we can even get into this even more so. But again, to your point, Nolan's cross is significant. It's not there just by happenstance. Well, and here's another thing. So as far as I know, Mr. Nolan found that cross in the early 1980s. Was it like 1982 maybe or 1981? Yeah, I've got right. that. That's all right. And while he was doing that, while he was mapping it, um, Joan Harris was still living up at New Ross and she was making her discovery. So here we have two people, two pioneers who had to try to persuade the world or convince the world that, hey, you know, we found something. Can you please take a look at it? Yeah. Uh, so, so while he was doing that on Oak Island, mapping his cross, she was up at New Ross digging in the ground and trying to uncover this amazing foundation. And she too was asking questions, you know, who did this, why, when, and she formulated her own theories. She actually had two theories ab about neuros. And that's what I would like to get into today. Cause last time we ran out of time. Yep. Um, it all, was funny because neither one, neither one of us believed at first either to this no. day or not believed at all really by, no. by no. the so-called educators, I should say, put it that way. Well, that's just it, Jack. Um, it, it's one thing to discover something and another to get it validated by other people. And I, too, would go to others to tell me if what I'm seeing is true and to correct my course or my thinking if, you know, if, if, if it's totally out of line. But to feel in your gut that what you found is there and it is true mm -hmm. and still not be believed then you just feel alone you feel like you're isolated you're you're alone and that burden of proof rests squarely on your shoulders, your shoulders. and it takes a, a very strong person to to be able to carry that burden for so Holy. many years and just stick by it and say i know what i found you might not believe me but I know it's there. And Mr. Nolan never once wavered in his conviction that what he found was true. Yep, not for he what might, I no. He might have not known what he found. You know, like he, his own curiosity might not have been satisfied 100% by the, you know, by the time that, he, you know, he died. And I, I, I so wish that both Mr. Nolan and... Uh, John Harris were still with us so that they could see these new, this new information and how we're connecting the dots now. He would, I think he would totally love it if he found that Nolan's Cross has another hidden dimension to it. And that's the connection to, to Neuroff. I think I, he would just, he would love it just because if everything has been found all over, he would just, he would, say, he I, would, he would say, I told you so. Yeah, and he would probably just pick up these uh, surveyor's instruments and get back to work. He would probably mm -hmm. be, um, you know, in your office right now measuring, right? He's trying to figure <laughs> he this would out. Be. Yeah, he'd right? be up knocking on your door going, hey, can I, uh, yeah. <laughs> right, be because he was the type of man who left no stone unturned. Mm -hmm. And I think John Harris was uh, out of the same cloth. Um. She just didn't have the science that he had to right. prove 
yep. you know, what she found. But I have to say that James McQuiston too is the type of man who, who leaves no stone unturned. And he has been looking and looking and finding things um, in the form of documents, historical records, uh, genealogy. And he understands all the intricate connections between the various Scottish families. So I really like his theory, by the way. And a lot of it is the same stuff that John Harris believed in. So, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have the power to bring either Joan or Fred together to talk to James. <laughs> but I, I feel like um, they would really like everything that has been uncovered or discovered right. so far. And I have a little thing here, and I got this, I, and, I've, and I was scrambling a little bit earlier today, to, and I found this, and I forgot to write down exactly, I think it was from a museum up there, it was a little paper that had been done, and I'm going to show this real quick here. This okay. is um, the uh, the castle in New Ross, question mark, and okay. it talks about Joan Harris under the mm -hmm. pen name. She went under the pen name Joan Hope, correct? Joan Hope, yes. Yeah, and uh, so this was a little thing, that, and I believe, and I'm sorry, folks, I, I meant to write this down, and, and, and I always like to give credit where I find stuff, and I use it on the show like this, and I I'll get this, and I'll put it into the show notes later on and into the chat. Um, because I, I like I said, I don't like to do that without uh, giving credit where credit is due. Um, but this was a publication. It's a multiple page publication um, that I found and that talks about her book. It shows her book cover right there, A Castle in Nova Scotia. And it, and it clearly has the star right there where New Ross is. And so that's where she was talking about that. And it says in 1997 when she moved there. So I just had that. I wanted to bring that up and show that. Um, so there's been a lot of speculation over that over the years about this uh, this castle, uh, as you say on there. That's but again, like you said, and I and I see Gretchen's watching too. Gretchen Cornwall, thank you, Gretchen, for being here today. And she mentioned the same thing about having that burden on your shoulders of these yeah. discoveries and this research and stuff. That's she knows it as well, like you. Yeah. Well, do you know um, what other map of Nova Scotia has that kind of dot? I, or I believe it's actually a little star. What's that? Z Zena's map. Zena Halpern. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so Zena Halpern had a map of Oak Island that right. one studied by Erin Helton also. Um, but she also had another map that shows um, the interior of Nova Scotia. And there are two other locations there. And one looks like it's roughly in the vicinity of neurons, although um, this would have to be confirmed, of course. But it occurred to me that there's another map like that that shows a little dot roughly in that spot. And I believe that um, on Zina's map, the name of that location, inland location, was Rodon or Rodon. I think it's R-O-D-O-N or R-H-O-D-O-N. I, I honestly don't have... Um, that map with me. So, Let's see, I can go ahead. I'm yeah. going to see if I can find it real quick. Maybe I can locate it. Now, would this be after the first map? Well, um, that, that I, I, I just I, I just know that there were at least two maps that she had, and I exchanged emails with her when she was uh, still alive, and my husband actually visited her at home in New York. And she showed him a lot of the artifacts uh, that she possessed. So her book, 
Christina Halpern's book was just the tip of the iceberg. And I'm, I, I miss her so much. I, I really wish that she too were still alive so that she could see some of this new discovery, this new research, because it would make sense to her. And then she could, you know, frame it for us. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's so much information there. And and it's so good that, you know, that uh, all of her uh, information, everything was given over for uh, for Rick uh, Lagina. And because, uh, yeah. I mean, he he thought the world of her and you could just tell, especially, you know, and, and again, we don't know that relationship that we saw between Rick and Zena, but you can feel it through Rick uh, watching him on the show and talking about her and everything that took place. I mean, he is. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Um, Zena was her, a Zena was a rock star. My yeah. husband said that uh, she's the the rock star grandmother he never had. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see it when Rick talked to her in person when he went down to talk to her in person that one day. It was just like he was just shaking his head, like "Wow." I, I mean, know. Yeah. Yeah. When she passed, he was it. It it hit him hard. It really mm -hmm. did hit him hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could tell. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, um, so again, going back to the cross and it's pointing up there and then Zena obviously had some interest in the, in the spot as well. Um, she, you know, if that dot is up there or a little star uh, and I, I didn't find it, I was actually looking around trying to find it on there real quick, but that's okay. Uh, so that means that it, it's definitely, there's some importance to there. Uh, mm -hmm. to that spot in New Ross. Uh, New Ross goes on to a lot of other things. And and one of the, you know, you you and I have kind of talked uh, before about another famous person that uh, we believe was up in that area too, that uh, mm -hmm. maybe had a home there. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe it's time to mention all the various theories that have been coined over go. the years um, about New Ross. It's funny, it's a little bit like Oak Island where you've got, you know, uh, some artifacts, uh, a lot of legends, and even more lore, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> folklore exactly. that kind yep. of uh, blossomed around it. So with, with Neuros, it was uh, the same thing. Um, for those who don't know, Neuros is a small town. It, it's um, a community that's uh, inland, um, in, right in the middle of Nova Scotia, really, and it's uh, maybe 20 kilometers or 20 miles I know kilometers and miles are not the same, <laughs> but uh, um, so roughly that distance. Um, if you go from from Oak Island uh, inland mm -hmm. and take about a ride of about twenty, let's put it like twenty five kilometers, you will end up at New Ross. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a very beautiful farm museum there called Ross Farm Museum, and that's where Carmen Legg works. He's the famous blacksmith that we often see on the Curse of Oak Island. Um, then you go into town and you will come upon this intersection. There's a grocery store there. There's a church, a small restaurant and a flashing beacon. And it's called the Charing Cross. Charing Cross. Charing Cross. So that part of town used to be called Charing Cross. And it's something that James, James McQuiston looked into and he found, um, and a very interesting explanation for it. So I will mention it later as part of one of the um, neural theories. All right. Good. And then if you keep going, you will see a, a Masonic Lodge on the right. And then shortly after that, on the left is this this property that we own, me and my husband. 
Mm-hmm. Um, several decades ago, it was um, first rented and then purchased by Joan Harris and her husband, Ron. They came, I believe, from Ontario. He was a teacher and he taught at the local um, school. And I think she was uh, maybe just, you know, staying at home and keeping herself busy. And somehow <laughs> she became this amateur archaeologist in her own backyard because uh, when she was putting in a garden, she found very strange old foundation. And she knew that it was quite deep. Apparently it runs quite deep, but she was only allowed to dig maybe one meter deep below the surface and then stop right there. So that was allowed by law back then. And she did not need a permit. Now the law is different. If I wanted to do what John did, I would need uh, permission from the government. And if I found anything of interest, I would have to notify them and you know turn over any artifacts that, that I might find. So the law is much stricter now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it keeps us from, you know, um, exploring right. that backyard more. We would like to, but uh, right right now, it's not possible to do it the way she did. But she did a good job. She was very thorough. She uncovered almost the entire backyard and eventually it started flooding. So she had to put the topsoil back. And so the foundation is underground again <laughs> you know it's, it's where it always was but right. if i were to take you there today all you would see is grass you would not see the outlines of the foundation anymore so that's a bummer a lot of people are disappointed when they come there and like oh where's the castle <laughs> uh you're standing on the point. <laughs> yeah you're actually standing is the story true that she almost thought when they were looking at the land that she could tell uh, that there was something there I read that summer, but she looked at it and thought there was something really strange about this. Mm, I believe the place spoke to her in a way that maybe other people um, didn't feel like, you know, I think she was very intuitive, very sensitive to to that kind of Mm -hmm. um, information. Like she had a very strong sixth sense and um, she listened to it. See, a lot of people have a strong intuition, but they don't listen to it, right? They uh, relegate everything to to their mind, their logical mind. But uh, she was very tuned in to the place. And it slowly started revealing its secrets to her. And then she said, okay, this is not standard. And she never accepted the standard explanation, you know. And that's <laughs> that good you, she didn't, right? right? Right, that Neuros was um, simply a, a colonial era town that was set up in 1816, 1817 by Captain William Ross and um, approximately 170 or 180 soldiers that were disbanded and they needed a fresh start in life. So the government gave them land grants and asked them to set up and operate farms. So um, so that's the official and accepted history, and I'm okay with that too. If if uh, if I have to accept that our property is simply from the 1800s, that's still 200 years worth of history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you you know that's not modern. So I'm I'm fine with that. But of course, if um, 
if it turns out that it's older than that, then uh, I, I'd be very happy with that too. Officially, the person who lived on our property in the 1800s was Daniel McKay. He was a blacksmith, the first blacksmith to arrive at New Ross. Um, but something always bothered me about um, the fact that there was a blacksmith operating on our property. And um, what bothered me about it was the location. So if you come to New Ross today, the current modern blacksmith is located at the bottom of the hill and near a crossroad. Um, but this blacksmith, Daniel McKay, would have been on top of the hill and nowhere near a crossroad. So I feel like if you're a blacksmith, you would want to be where you will get um, a lot of business, right? Well, that's going to be at the crossroad where all the traffic comes exactly. through, right? Mm -hmm. And you will not want to make draft animals like oxen walk up the hill. You're going to try to accommodate them and, you know, like make it easier to come to you, right? Especially so, if they have shoe and needs repair, you know, if they, right. if they need a shoe repair, then yeah, you know, that even more burdensome for, for them to have to go up a hill. Yes. Now it is possible that he was simply uh, given that lot, that he was simply told by uh, the government, look, this is where you have to set up your shop and you have to be happy with that. And he took what, what was available. Mm -hmm. But if he had any say in where he wanted to set up his shop or which land he wanted to own, which lot, I think he would have gone for one that's near the crossroad, perhaps near Charing Cross, at the bottom of the hill and near a stream where he could easily get water. So, so that just doesn't make sense that he would willingly pick that spot no. where where we are. But but if he came in 1817 and he saw that there was a piece of land that already had um, remnants of an older building, you know, even just the foundation and an old well that was old but functional, then uh, he could be in business very quickly. He could get the local guys to help him erect walls, put on a roof and clean out the well. And, you know, he could <laughs> fire out the forge and yeah. help them, ready right? to go. Running in less of yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and there, is, there is um, um, oral tradition among the local Mi'kmaq people, some of whom um, were John Harris's friends and helpers. So I believe two Mi'kmaq men told her that this stone well that's still on our property that it was there before the town was founded in 1816. So that's pretty cool. If the Mi'kmaq say that they remember drinking from that well before the British soldiers arrived, I believe that's significant and it should be investigated. To me, the oral tradition of the native people is as solid as an artifact sitting on the shelf of some museum because that's how they kept track of their history and they remembered significant events and they made sure that the new generation knew about the history of of their people of, of their own nation mm -hmm. so these stories were passed down over centuries and we still have them today you know in cape breton which is part of nova scotia um the mi'kmaq of people who live in Cape Breton, they too have uh, a legend that says that they were visited by tall, blonde, or red-headed men 
um, in pre-colonial times. So who, who were they? I'm thinking Vikings or somebody like that, right? Mm -hmm. So they will tell you, yeah, we were visited and it's not controversial at all. We accepted that this happened. Right. Why why do you not believe it, right? Like we're telling <laughs> you that, that that happened, right? Yeah. Talk yeah. to the people that were there, the yeah, the yeah. natives of the land. You they were Yeah, we, we are the doubting we are the doubting Thomases, right? We yeah. are the ones who are like, oh, well, we're not sure. We have to make like we have to verify something a hundred times before we accept that what we see or hear is true and yeah. um the Mi'kmaq people don't do that if they know something they know it they, they they accept it and so this oral tradition is something that i accept too and i don't question you know if they say that uh the well was there before the town was founded then i want to know what else they might know right i'm not going to discard that information right yeah and i that well I, and i had those uh those pictures that um you had sent me one and then I had another one too. And, and that was something that you said, uh, had said before that this well was, um, told by the Mi'kmaq people that it was there prior to yes. the town's establishment in 1816, 1817. Yes. And you can see how the stones were laid in mm -hmm. layers, right? The smaller stones are at the top. And as the well goes deeper, the stones also increase in size, presumably because they have to support heavier load, right? right. More pressure. Right. And Rick Lagina was quite taken by the, quite smitten by the well. He said it was beautifully constructed. There's no mortar that joins the stones. Right. So, they literally are just like fitted into each other. And it's amazing how somebody was even able to gather the perfect stones of the perfect size right. to, to, to fit the, the purpose. So currently the well is about, um, I'd say 20 feet deep or 21 feet deep. But Joan Harris claimed that it was deeper, that it was as deep as 50 feet or like, between 50 and 60 and for us um that was like a you know head scratching moment we're like how could this well be two or three times deeper than it is now it has plenty of water as is so there's no reason for it to be deeper than that but um joan said that um the fire department the local fire department used to draw water from this well to fill their fire engines and there you can imagine that they would need more water than is currently available. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. for them, the, so, so if we believe the, the firefighters story, then the well would have had to be deeper, which means that somebody filled it in mm -hmm. between the time that she owned the property and the time that we bought it. Right. And I know when Tony Sampson went down in there, we had Tony on the show and he talked about that a little bit. And when yeah. he went down in there, he was indicating that it seemed like it to him like it had a solid bottom to it. Uh, but again, he indicated that it could very well be stuff been thrown in there and filled up, you know, or, 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 you know, um, some stuff tossed in there in the bottom. So, um, that was well, very interesting. the reason why he was sent down the well in the first place was to determine if there are flagstones lining the bottom of the well, right? because yep. 
uh, one of the legends um, of uh, Oak Island and Neuroth states that the flagstones that used to align the money pit came from the Gold River and that the same flagstones were also used for this well in mm -hmm. Europe. Okay. And I forget in which book, <laughs> which book talks about this or whose theory, <laughs> but I read it somewhere. So that's why Tony came and he was lowered into the well. And uh, while he was down there poking around, he also um, studied the, the stones themselves, the surface of the stones to see if there are any symbols. Mm -hmm. And he thought that he saw two. One was uh, what looks like a triangle or a pyramid with a dot or all-seeing eye in the yep. middle. Uh, any Freemason out there will be familiar with that symbol. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, and that's pretty clearly carved. Yeah. I mean, that's you look at this thing and it's like, mm -hmm. well, you could write off a lot of time. You could write off something when you see it as what they call matrixing. You're, you're seeing a pattern in something or that pattern's just happenstance just happens to be there in your mind is seeing a particular pattern. I'm sorry, but this looks carved. You know, mm -hmm. that picture there, it's it's pretty clear to me that's been carved in there. So yeah, that's interesting. Go, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I jumped in on you there. No, it's it's fine. And then um, um, the second symbol that he saw was the so-called the British broad arrow. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which looks like a three three lines forming almost like a triangle shape. And he said that that symbol is very old, that it dates back to the 1300s, which is an interesting century. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 1300s. And that it was used to mark the property of the king. So it was used on nails, um, stones that were on the let's say there was a big stone sitting on the, on the side of the road or marking some kind of a crossroad. So that could have been marked with that symbol or trees that were marked for the future purpose of being cut down and then shaped into masts on ships. So he said that if, um, let's say, the British Navy um, saw on the coast, some suitable trees that were tall enough and had the right shape and right size to be used as a uh, ship mass, they would mark them with the symbol. And it meant that nobody was allowed to cut down the tree until the Navy came back for it. Right. Yep. I've actually Because it was the property of the king. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. So and, it, it against the law and it had a huge penalty to it too, I hear. Okay. Right. Okay. What, like getting your nose and ears cut off or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, it could actually, if you, if you really got caught and you did it maliciously without, um, because you wanted the wood, um, it could lead to death was what okay. I heard. And again, I'm not a scholar okay. in this stuff. That's what I heard, but yes, it could lead to death now. And some of, I also heard that some of them were doing it, you know, later on in spite of, they were just doing it because, um, they were saying, well, you can't have these trees. These are our trees. You can't okay. mark them. And so they were cutting them down anyway. But again, this is all stuff that I've been told and heard over the years, but may not be true. I'm not putting that validity on it. And and so if um, if this well is simply a 19th century well, if it was dug in 1817 by Daniel McKay, maybe he marked one of the stones with the British broad arrow to let everybody know that, you know, that's um, a British well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that that's a conjecture. I, I don't have any way to prove that that's right. how it happened. Right. 
but it's interesting and i of Very. course have to consider everything and i can't discard the sort of stuff so until so, you can disprove it yep yeah and so tony went down the well and he did not find the flagstones there was a lot of silt so uh he poked around my husband also poked around off camera and uh we came to the conclusion that there's it's just silt that there's no flagstones and if there are flagstones they must be deeper down below the silt right yeah so if there's been a lot of junk thrown in there that would make sense but mm -hmm. and again how would a, how would you go you know you would have to excavate that entire well out um but then again you're you're ruining that uh that history of that you know well you don't want to ruin it either so um no there, there's um no easy way to to find this out and um, we'd rather keep the well as it is than, you know, risk um, that there will be some kind of a, um, you know, damage done to it or um, a rock falls on somebody's head and stuff like this. It's not worth it. So, yeah, so right we now we just keep it clean. We make sure that, you know, more silt or branches don't, don't get inside. But uh, the well is, is really cool. And... Uh, I really liked it. When you're standing on the bottom, you don't hear any sounds from the surface. It's a very busy uh, road that uh, passes by the house. Um, there's lots of heavy uh, trucks that, that drive on that road. So there's a lot of noise, like nonstop, even on weekends. But when you are underground, on, standing on the bottom of mm -hmm. that well, you don't hear anything except your own breath. And so I actually meditated there. I was like, okay, I'm going to just meditate. And I felt very calm, very peaceful. And I really, really liked it. So it's a cool place. It's not scary or like fear inducing at all. I didn't feel claustrophobic or anything. I didn't want to go to the surface. Tim's like, come on, <laughs> we got to go home. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. <laughs> I'm like, no, I want to stay. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. That's yeah. awesome. There's, I, I have another picture here, and this is the one uh, when the uh, Oak Island team was out uh, on your property. And, and, and mm -hmm. I've heard, now you've mentioned to me before that this particular stone that I believe, uh, you know, you, it's pretty clear on here what was on that stone. I mean, it's. Yeah, it looks like a cross mm -hmm. pate. I won't be mm -hmm. beating around the bush. Now, not everybody sees the, the cross. Yep. I, I do. Uh, some people think it's an angel. Some people think it's the goddess Tanit. That's what Zina Halpern thought, that it's a Phoenician goddess Tanit or Tanit. Mm -hmm. And some people see nothing at all. In fact, um, the archaeologists that visited Joan Harris uh, from Parks Canada, that was the department um, that handled archaeology at the time, Parks Canada, they came um, after she requested their presence and expertise, they visited her and they looked at the stone and they said that it's completely natural, that it doesn't have any man-made markings on it. So mm -hmm. they were unimpressed by it and she was very disappointed. Now, where is the stone now though? The stone is at Queens County Museum in Liverpool. Okay. We <laughs> moved it there uh, just before the Curse of Oak Island um, episode aired in the fourth season that's the one um where 
my husband and I appeared to talk about New Austin Templars. Mm-hmm. And we we were worried, seriously worried that we would not be able to protect this stone. As you can see, it's out in the open. Mm-hmm. There's no fence around it. And we thought if somebody pulls up here in the middle of the night with a trailer, they can load up the stone and be gone and we'll have no idea what happened to it. Or they could just smash it, right? People do crazy stuff. Unfortunately, true, yes. Yeah, so we chose to protect it and we thought that the best way to do it would be to um, house it in a place where it would be safe from vandals and the elements because it's so eroding. I mean, if that cross is really there, it's so eroded that you can barely, barely discern it. And the erosion is not going to stop, right? I mean, the weather never stops. Move it out there, the elements take care of everything. Right. Right. So it's in a museum and um, it's loved and cared for. (laughs) Good. So we, we are happy. We're happy that I'm glad you did that. I really yeah. am because that way it is preserved. And that's, that's the thing about, I mean, we've seen other stone carvings and stuff and even, you know, the um, sculptor, um, you know, uh, Sean Williamson um, has made mention of this as well. This type of thing, the erosion of the rain and the weather over the years, just yeah. wearing away, um, you know, beautiful carvings. And that's, right. that's something that, you know, obviously you see here and I've got this picture up and I'm moving my mouse around showing the different angles to the, uh, to the stone and the cross pate. Uh, it, it, to me, it looks like it's there and just simply worn down. It really does. And I'm, I'm on board with your belief on that. And I'm just, and I'm really glad that you guys had it preserved. I really am. That's, that was, that was a, a very, well, very smart move. Thanks. If if anybody has trouble seeing the cross, just uh, look above it. That's me wearing a t-shirt with a cross pate. Mm-hmm. So so that's on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were saying something to you when you when I talked to you last time. Wasn't the uh, the Prometheus crew saying something about the the, yeah. the story? Oh yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah. When when I showed up. Um, to, to be, you know, filmed <laughs> for the Crucible Gallon. I was wearing this T-shirt, and um, they said you can't display the symbol because then the audience might be swayed one way or the other, or they might be able to tell what we're going to talk about before uh, I open. Okay. So they said, "Put your jacket back on, zip it up." So I did. So you'll see me wearing a, a black jacket, but it was. Um, <laughs> I was sweating the entire time. And of course, the sweat was, uh, the steam and the sweat rising from my jacket was attracting the black, the oh. famous black flies on your ass. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I had, like, the back of my neck was completely bitten. And when I came home, I was just covered in welts. And it took two weeks for the allergic reaction to die down. It was horrible. Yeah, Jim Wilson yeah. talked about those too. Those, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with those from Michigan. Up in Michigan, yeah. they're pretty nasty. Oh, they'll, <laughs> get they'll, they'll get you. They'll get you. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll climb up your sleeve. You might spray the back of your neck, and then they will just climb up your sleeve. <laughs> yep. So you get bitten one way or the other. Um, so if you if you look at that stone again, oh, you right, will right. notice that. The left arm of the cross appears to be longer than the right arm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where else have we seen that? Where uh, the that left would be arm on is the lead cross. 
Yeah, that's the yeah, Red, Red Cross. Cross. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, it it's definitely longer than yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I can see I can see it on here. I mean, but but again, I'm one of those people that looks for that kind of stuff in in things like this. So I can definitely see it in here. This is amazing. Well, this rock is amazing to me. Well, the human eye seeks um symmetry patterns, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. We we um when we look at each other's face the face that is the most symmetrical we think is the most beautiful it's all about symmetry right and so on this cross you look for or on the stone you look for a symmetrical pattern and and you notice right away that there's something out of whack and it's the left arm right like it doesn't fit the rest so why was the left arm longer that that's what i would like to know why is the left arm on the lead cross longer than the right arm I don't know that we. I'm sure there's somebody uh, in our group that could probably answer that question. I'm. I'm not sure. I, I honestly don't know. Okay, I believe that. I, I believe that um, the religious explanation for that is that the one arm, the shorter arm, represents um, the amount of people who believe in uh, in in the religion, like they're true believers. Mm -hmm. And the longer arm represents the amount of people who don't believe and they need to be converted, right? So there's no. work to be done. But uh, I, I, I'm i not sure I've where not I heard, heard that before. or read that, but somebody told me that that's what, what it signified. But um, maybe it also had to do with distances or direction. Maybe, you know, it's a clue. So, so hmm. it'd be good to try to decipher it. Right. Now, and speaking of... Go mm -hmm. ahead. No, I was oh, just gonna, I'm just wondering if it's uh, and somebody mentioned it in the uh, Anne Marie just mentioned it too. Is that the same with the Nolan's crosses? I thought Nolan's cross was perfectly symmetrical. I didn't think it had one side longer than the other. I think it is symmetrical. Okay, but we also know that um, there are other boulders that plug into Nolan's cross, and then that pattern becomes the tree of life. Mm -hmm. So there could right. be. Another boulder just left of the left arm. True. Where you could extend the left arm just a little bit, right? Yep. Yeah, that could be. Well, at, at the beginning um, of today's podcast, I mentioned that when James McQuiston told me that Nolan's cross points to Neuros, I immediately asked myself, was there anything at Neuros that pointed back to Oak Island, mm -hmm. right? And so maybe this was that directional marker. Maybe the, the stone was it. What I what I don't know is where exactly it was found because um, Joan Harris, I believe, said that she moved it a little bit. She found it face down and she erected it, but I feel like she might have moved it a little bit. So the hmm. spot where it was when we got the place might not have been the spot where she found it, but I still think she found it on the left edge of, uh, of her backyard hmm. that it, it wasn't like by the road or, you know, in the trees or by the hmm. well, that it was roughly in that location where she erected because it's very heavy. Oh my gosh, this thing, it weighs a ton. I'll bet. doesn't look like it, but it's horribly heavy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then even if, you know, I mean, how far could she move it? It would still line up. I think it would still line up. You know, she had she had no equipment like um, skid steer loader a or, or forklift. Yeah. She did everything by hand. So you're right; she couldn't have uh, moved it 
too far. She couldn't have dragged it no. too far, right? Way too much weight. Yeah. All right. So ready for the series? Yes. Yes. Bring them on. This was a very, very long <laughs> intro, very long backstory. <laughs> it's amazing how uh, this 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 place in Nuras, this property in Nuras, how just how little I know about it. You know, I've been looking into its history for about five years now, and I still feel like I know nothing. You know, You're learning stuff new all the <laughs> yeah. time, right? You're right. I know that I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the that's the stage I'm at right now. Okay, but I am open minded. So, all right. So I mentioned that Joan Harris uh, coined two theories that that she stood by, even when the archaeologists said no. You know. There is nothing special about your place. Um, so she she was steadfast and she didn't doubt herself. So the first theory is the theory um, of Norumbega. Norumbega is basically a fabled city that was marked by some of the early cartographers on the east coast of North America. So maps that were produced in the 1500s and 1600s that show um, New England and Nova Scotia, they will have Norumbega. What nobody knows is where Norumbega actually was. So um, the cartographers believed it was out there, like Verrazano. Uh, he was in the employ of uh, King Francis I, the King of France. And so Verrazano was very confident in putting Norumbega um, in big bold letters over his back, but the location was uh, a little questionable. So Norumbega was basically um, a Viking settlement. That's how I understand it. And we know that the Vikings who uh, traveled to North America around the year 1000 with Leif Erikson, that they did set up more than one uh, settlement. The one that we know about is in Lansdowne Meadows in Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. Yep. But the archaeologists who um, who uncovered Lansdowne Meadows admitted that that was just a temporary settlement, that it only lasted a few years, and that it could have been like a ship repair station or a way station, and that there was another one further south um, or southwest in perhaps warmer climate where the Vikings truly resided. And we also know that Leif Erikson had this timeshare <laughs> in North America. He, he built a house in North America and other Vikings rented it from him. So he wasn't there full time. Obviously, he returned home after his uh, first journey. But then other people, his countrymen, wanted to sail to North America too, and they rented it from him. They wanted to stay there because it was probably very nice. But time we share, just, we, time just, share, we yeah. just don't know where Lee Erikson's <laughs> timeshare was. It could have been this Norm Vega. That's very interesting. Yeah, so oh. Joan Harris thought that she, um, she recognized um, Norse architecture or building style um, in the shape of, of the foundation that, that she uncovered. And she um, dated it or guessed that it dated to the 1200s. Mm -hmm. And some of the artifacts that she dug up, 
she thought could have been from that same time period. Although the archaeologists said no, um, these are like 19th or early 20th century objects that you found. There's nothing Viking about this place. The second theory is um, a theory that was promoted by um, Michael Bradley. He was a journalist and an author from Ontario. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called Holy Grail Across the Atlantic. Yep. And he actually met Joan Harris. He travels to New Ross and he met her and uh, her husband. But in his book, Holy Grail Across the Atlantic, he did not list their real names. He calls them uh, the McKays. And I think it's because uh, of the blacksmith, Daniel McKay who lived on that property. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Right. So, that is so he, very interesting. Yeah. So, so in this book, he calls them the McKays. Wow. But really, it was Joan Harrison, her husband, Ron. Mm -hmm. And so she um, showed him the property. She told him all the legends about it, what the Mi'kmaq people said, and stuff like that. And then he went away and wrote this book. And... To her surprise, he wasn't really supportive of the Norwegia theory. Instead, he was uh, promoting Templars and Henry Sinclair, who was a Scottish nobleman. Uh, he was also the Lord of Orkney. Now, today, Orkney is part of Scotland, but um, back then, so that would be, when I say back then, I mean uh, the 1300s, mm -hmm. it was part of Norway, the Kingdom of Norway. And... Um, Orkney used to be, uh, or Orkney was inhabited by uh, Vikings. So they came from, from that line. And of course, they were great sailors and explorers. And we, we know with certainty that men from Orkney did travel to North America. And they explored it between the year 1000 and 1347, when the last ship from uh, North America came to Iceland, loaded with, with lumber. So... I think that the Henry Sinclair theory has a lot of merit. And um, not just because Henry Sinclair is said to have sailed to Nova Scotia and stayed here for a couple of years. This would have happened in the, in the year, I think, 1396 or 1398. There's a disagreement when exactly he was here. Now, of course, a lot of people disbelieve that <laughs> Henry Sinclair had the capability or that his men from Orkney had a way to transport him to North America. But to me, it's a, it's a no-brainer, right? Mm -hmm. So Henry Sinclair um, was related to the Norwegian royalty on his mother's side. He even had the chance to claim the Norwegian throne or like be maybe the second or third in line for the throne. <laughs> Wow. But he turned it down, and instead, I think he accepted Orkney as um, second option, you know, plan B. He's like, okay, I don't want to be king, but I want Orkney, and um, <laughs> he was allowed to have it. <laughs> so so he became Earl of, of Orkney, and he basically rubbed shoulders with, you know, Norwegian princes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why he's often referred to as um, Prince Henry Sinclair. This so, is a uh, this is a plaque that I brought up. I found this when I was looking around. This is in, and I forget the exact uh, place uh, where this 
Henry Sinclair Monument is. I think um, it's Guysboro. It looks like it could be a Guysboro. That's um, that's in Nova Scotia. Right. And it says right on it. Now, of course, you know, this, this doesn't definitively say that he came over, but it said, I know you can't read that folks. It's too small. And I apologize. I wanted to make all these pictures so much bigger, but it does say that it right on, it says the voyage of uh, Prince Henry Sinclair yeah. uh, of the, uh, to the new world in 1398. It says 1398. Okay, 1398. Really, yeah. 1398. Okay. So you were right on uh, with that. So what, uh, and then this symbol that's on here too, uh, we'll let you talk about that when you get, when you get to it. Um, but anyway, I just thought that that was very interesting because here's a plaque, you know, commemorating the fact that he made this voyage to the new world. Right. So yeah. somebody believes it. Well, I think that the um, that Scottish people were very enterprising, and um, I I might have told you uh, privately off the record <laughs> that in Greenland there was um, a set of artifacts found during an archaeological dig. There's a book about it. Um, well, it's mentioned in a book called um, "The Frozen Echo." It's a it's an academic book written by an academic historian or archaeologist about um, archaeological exploration in Greenland. And in one chapter, it mentions that uh, artifacts um, from, yes, that's the book, artifacts from uh, Clan Campbell, I think mm -hmm. it was Clan yes. Campbell, yes. were discovered Campbell. in Greenland near the Western Settlement. So in Greenland, you had the Western Settlement and the Eastern Settlement. Um, and I think that Eastern Settlement was better for farming like more suitable for farming mm -hmm. whereas the western settlement was where all these ships were launched that wanted to go to canada to to north america so what was a scottish nobleman in the early 1300s uh, doing in greenland mm -hmm. in western settlement he's far from home and right. this was around the time of um, robert the bruce who was fighting for scottish independence so still, what, what was this Campbell uh, clan member doing in Greenland, right? Exactly. So I think that he was on the way to North America. And again, I don't have a way to prove it, but, you know, I'm always thinking ahead, like, where are you <laughs> headed to, right? You didn't come to Greenland for sightseeing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Such a remote place. Yep. Right. So that that would have put him um a spot where he, he was literally halfway to north america right all yep. you have to do is you just board a ship that's headed to north america and you're in the new world mm -hmm. and it so makes to me, sense as a good stopover place to resupply and then head yes. on continue on yeah exactly. and, they, and they were known to various places on the coast where they would resupply, could resupply mm -hmm. yep. mm -hmm. all along I, I asked a friend um, who is Scottish, what he thought about this artifact and how it got to, to Greenland. And he thought it was weird, but he said that the Campbells were, um, that they had Viking blood, that they, a lot of them were descended from Vikings. So he might've had some blood relations in, in Greenland. So maybe he was, you know, not on his own, but among friends or, relatives but still why would he want to go there why not to a more exciting busier place you know where there are 
pubs and women and <laughs> stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> Why choose Greenland Western settlement? There's like there's like five hundred people and you know a thousand cows and that's it. Yeah, nothing there. So yeah, nothing there. Move on. <laughs> no, no, no nightlife. Great you know? place to visit, but I don't want to live there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and uh, uh, a piece of chain mail was, uh, or maybe the maybe the whole. Um, uh, chainmail shirt the was, yep. was found along with um with with the artifact that displaced the the coat of arms of uh clan campbell mm -hmm. and and so that's an expensive item you know back then chainmail was so expensive that only knights could afford right to buy it right so a regular farmer or sailor didn't need it and in fact it would have probably rusted <laughs> mm -hmm. right if uh, if you wore it on board of a ship crossing the ocean so he must have been a knight so we have a, a potentially a scottish knight staying in greenland in the early 1300s going maybe to to north america or returning from there right so right. yeah um so Henry Sinclair was a Scottish nobleman and he was also a Norwegian nobleman. He was Earl of Orkney. And so I believe he had the resources and the crew to, to go to North America and explore it. And when he came back, he probably um, brought back with him some stuff from the New World that he would have found fascinating or exotic, maybe as a present for his family. And among those things, I think, were plants because... Um, in Rosslyn Chapel, which is a Sinclair Chapel, there are several stone carvings, very beautiful ones, that portray plants native to North America. And um, there is um, maize, this flower called Trillium. There's uh, the cactus, aloe vera, and a couple more that I can't name off the top of my head, but I, I have a list of them somewhere mm -hmm. among and my maize being the other word for corn, basically. And, and, yes. and I think they showed that. I mean, there was, yeah. And and this would be the, a great thing to talk to uh, uh, Sean Williamson about. I yes. think he's actually, has he looked at these before? I'm sure he knows them because he worked um, on, he did some restoration work at Rosslyn Chapel. So I'm would, sure yeah, he knows yeah, he Yep. Every single stone carving inside. I'm going to have to ask him about that. He's going to be coming on uh, later uh, later on in a month or so. We're going to have him on. So, yeah, we're definitely going to have to talk to him about that. And I remember seeing those, the ears of corn. Now, people say, oh, well, you know, that's just, you know, it could be any plant. No, it's not. I mean, you look at it. <laughs> yeah. An ear of corn only looks like an ear of corn. There's nothing else that quite looks like an ear of corn. You know, so, right. yeah, it's right. pretty, uh, pretty, pretty pretty positive what it is and it that's not native to over there so where would they have seen that right mm -hmm. right yeah i, I was wondering didn't uh didn't the natives also have uh tales of them being over there for a year and then going away i think you are talking about the Mi'kmaq hero god blue scap who is an, an amazing character in um in, in the Mi'kmaq oral tradition and I have, I think, two books that talk about Glooscap. So Glooscap was, at least the way I understand it, he was a, an, 
a visitor or an outsider. He came to Nova Scotia through Cape Breton, but he came from somewhere else. And then he stayed among the Mi'kmaq people and he learned from them and then they learned from him. So there was an exchange. Now, Glooscap um, in the Mi'kmaq tradition is Mi'kmaq. He's, he's native. There's no doubt about that. But uh, it's possible that he is um, a composite character that evolved over the years and, you know, picked up characteristics um, of several such heroes. And I'm sure that the Mi'kmaq people have many heroes among them. And it all amalgamated into this character of Glooscap. So he's he's a he's a hero god, meaning uh, to to me that sounds like like a demigod where he's you know human but also divine. He's got these superpowers that um, um, just ordinary people didn't have. And in a book by Frederick Paul, who wrote about Henry Sinclair's exploits in Nova Scotia, he mentions that Glooscap taught the Mi'kmaq people how to fish with nets. Uh, prior to that, they would um, uh, trap fish in um, in these little dams. I think it's called, a, it, it's spelled W-E-I-R, weir or where? I don't know how to pronounce it. So, and, and they, they still do it. Like they will show you how, how that works. And it was you know very efficient method when you lived on the coast, but he also showed them how they could do it with the net, with floats, mm -hmm. and um, they adopted that method too. So, to me, it sounds like Glooscap um, knew a lot of things, and he was willing to to share them, which is great. So he was um, welcome among among the Mi'kmaq. If you think about that too, that's not going to be. I mean, if you think about you know being this, if if Glooscap was a hero god, God is probably not going to show them something so specific about fishing with the nets. But, I mean, I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but it would be more likely, like you said, like a demigod, uh, somebody who that has been raised to that elevation who was actually human that would teach them something like that. That seems to be, makes more sense to me uh, anyway. Well, in Greek mythology, you have Prometheus who is a hero god who steals fire from the gods and gives it to mankind because he believes mankind can use it and that you know their lives will be better when when they have access to fire and then he got in trouble over that right he got punished he was uh um chained up to this uh, big rock and every day an eagle came from the sky and tore out his liver that was his punishment <laughs> so that didn't go too well i did uh, yeah that didn't go well yeah yeah, but he had the guts to do it, and he was on the side of mankind, and he was, um, I believe, a, a demigod. So uh, he was in both camps. Let's let let let's put it that way. So Glooscap was obviously um, very special, and he came through uh, Cape Breton or from Cape Breton, and that's the place where the Mi'kmaq have um, that story about being visited in pre-colonial times, right? Mm -hmm. By, you know, tall, blonde, or red-headed men who didn't stay, but they passed through. Um, another interesting thing about Puskap is that he apparently sailed on an island uh, with trees. And I... I agree with F Frederick Paul that that sounds awfully similar to 
um, a ship with a hard deck and mast, right? Yeah, and the mast being like trees yeah. because of the spreading right. arms and all of that. Yep. Yeah. But I think that if if Gluskap is a composite character, I think that he already existed in the uh, Mi'kmaq tradition and, uh, or mythology. And if there was somebody like Henry Sinclair who came by and who um, stayed with them for a couple of years, um, then he would have shared what he knew with the Mi'kmaq and the Mi'kmaq would have helped him and shared with him what, what they had to, to teach him. Right? I mean, they, they were experts in survival, surviving the wilderness. And Nova Scotia back then was complete wilderness. There was not a single road, no port. No, nothing, right? And they they were able to live here and thrive. So obviously they knew the secret mm-hmm. to how, how to make it in Nova Scotia. And if he was a smart man, he would have listened to them and uh, made friends with them, make friends with them. So so Gluskap could have very mm-hmm. well could have very well a Mi'kmaq god or hero god. And then if they were exposed to some European explorers like Henry Sinclair, then bits and pieces from those interactions might have been incorporated into that legend and slowly it grew in, in complexity and size and and, and all that. And uh, apparently Gluskab did tour Nova Scotia. He traveled around Nova Scotia and um, he spent about two years here. And then he left, he, he went somewhere else. And I don't know if he returns. Like I didn't study this legend um, enough to to know for certain that he returned and when and how, but um, he was a real person. Uh, I have no doubt about that. But um, I'm not one to uh, steal thunder from um, you know other people. And in my eyes, Gluskap is a Mi'kmaq hero. I I just allow the possibility that he could have had some characteristics in, incorporated or grafted onto him from encounters with some strange and interesting people who came from the outside and left an impression um, on the Mi'kmaq people. And they would have left a deep impression on the visitors too. So you can see that where Henry Sinclair returns to Scotland and he brings stuff with him, the plants, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So he, he would have... Um, been deeply impressed with the Mi'kmaq and all that they had going for them. So um, I think these plants are from North America and I don't I don't think that it's just an artistic rendition of a European plant. No, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it I is agree. an American plant and let's, well, let's, and let's and not that, change it. Like you said, that's exactly how they would have had to do it. I mean, in, in modern days, you know, you're going to go over to another country or something and you're going to whip out your phone and you're going to take a picture of it. And you're going to yeah. preserve that picture. You're going to be like, look what I saw. So they're going to have to do another means by which to do this. And yeah. and then what better way to come back and to carve it in, into stone. So to preserve the fact that, hey, look what I saw when I was over there. I mean, we, we know that carvings were done that way for, you know, for, for years. That's how they did their pictures. They made a carving of it. Uh, whether yes. it be a carving in a wall like the, the like we saw in the, in the uh, prison where the the Templars were held, the carvings that they did there of yes. the, 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 uh, the cross that was found, the lead cross, 
Um, but in, in other representations, and I do have a picture, Linda sent this over to me while we were talking and I was going to show it real quick. This is, um, actually, uh, Sean Williamson. Uh, he's in the, in the, yes. in the chapel there and it, there he is doing his inspection, uh, of different things. Now, can you imagine going into a place like that with his eye being a master sculptor and being able to look at this? I, I can't even, I, I can't wait to ask him, honestly, to, you know, what was please his impression? Please do, please do. And I will make sure I, I watch the podcast because I want to know as well mm -hmm. what, he, what he sees in that stone. Yep. Um, the, the Henry Sinclair theory uh, that Michael Bradley presented in his book, Holy Grail Across the Atlantic, basically it says that Henry Sinclair had a winter camp at New Ross because uh, he would have, needed to stay somewhere um, safe during the winter. Winters in Nova Scotia are long and they're brutal. It starts getting cold around November and it doesn't uh, get warm or warmish until middle of April. And <laughs> still you can Not get now. snow. <laughs> we don't feel safe until like the long weekend in May. <laughs> so... Yeah. So winters are long and you have to know how to survive. And here's the thing. If Henry Sinclair was working with the Mi'kmaq and following their advice on how to survive, he would have gone with them inland because back in those days, the Mi'kmaq people would go inland for the winter. They would follow the, the big game, the moose and the deer, and they would, they would stay inland. They only went down to the coast in spring and summer because then they could fish. Right. So it makes sense to me that he too would have taken their advice and set up a camp inland. Um, and it's funny, uh, Michael Bradley didn't really have a lot to go on when he was coining this Henry Sinclair theory. And uh, strangely enough, there was a um, psychic who worked for archaeologists and apparently he was highly accurate. He had like 80% accuracy in his predictions. His name was George McMullen. He was from Ontario. He's not alive anymore, but he worked for um, archaeologists who were digging stuff up in Egypt. And he actually showed them the locations of some of some sites. Wow. So he wow. was right on the money. And he came to Neuros incognito. He kind of invited himself <laughs> and walked around the place. And then he wrote up a little report. And in that report, which was also published in the local newspaper called Lighthouse News, he said that Neuros was the winter camp of Henry Sinclair. Wow. And, and it he makes total described sense. the buildings. Yeah, he even described the buildings, what, what they looked like. Wow. And uh, he said that the standing stone, the, the so-called Hermstone, that we say have um, that we, we say we think has a cross on it, that that was um, in a different location in the 1300s, that it would have been closer to the lake, mm -hmm. which is outside of Neuros, and that um, the stone was erect erected by men from Orkney who were traveling with Henry Sinclair. And, and as we know, he was Earl of Orkney, so of course he mm -hmm. would have yep. had Orkney men with him. <laughs> <laughs> and that these men um, put up that stone to keep track of time so either like a sundial or to keep track of seasons meaning um the arrival of spring summer so they would have wanted to know um about the solstices and the equinoxes because a lot of uh, very important 
religious Christian holidays happen uh, in those times of the year. Mm -hmm. So in the spring, that would be Easter, right? In the summer, you would have the day of uh, St. John the Baptist, who was also crucially important to the Templars. Mm -hmm. um, in the fall, there's um, the autumn equinox. I don't know what Christian holiday falls on that. But in the winter, it's Christmas time, right? Like Christmas is around winter solstice. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So whether they still uh, had any pagan beliefs or whether they were all Christian, they would have followed the passage of time. And if you are far away from home on a different continent, you don't have your fellow um, relatives or villagers or your local priest telling you, oh, we got to get ready for Easter or, you know, it's time to celebrate Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. You were in the wilderness. How were you supposed to tell what, what exactly. day? it was and you know to not miss it right like you mm -hmm. wouldn't want to miss that so that's what george mcmullen said and i i so wish that i could invite him there again and <laughs> pick his brain and ask him more questions about neuros so so that's the second theory templars and henry sinclair the third before you, before you go on to the next one too i wanted to point out also that michael bradley had done a sequel to that book okay um, yeah, he did the first one, uh, The Holy Grail Across the Atlantic. And then in 1998, he did a sequel to it called The Grail Knights of North America. And yeah, that one is where, really good. Yeah, really and good. this one yeah. kind of ties into what you and I had talked about last time, about them coming down through the St. Lawrence Seaway and making their way uh, through, the great, through the Great Lakes with the Holy Grail with them. I don't know. And again, I'm not going to you know, say that his book is correct and all that. But so it kind of goes along with what you and I talked about last time about making their way down through the, uh, uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway through Niagara and then on down into the Great Lakes. So um, that is a story for another time, I think, but um, interesting that I, and I just stumbled across that information about his second book. So um, I'm going to well, have to get it now and read it because now I got to know what he's talking about there. I will just say that if anybody among the audience um, wishes to read up on this, this follow-up story, yes, you can definitely get Michael Bradley's book. You can also visit his website. It's still up. He's, he passed away a few years ago, but his website is still up. Just Google the, the keywords of Michael Bradley and it, it should come up. Mm -hmm. um, another researcher who um, looked into Templars in Quebec is um, Francine Bernier. And she wrote a book about um, Templars in Montreal. That book is probably out of print, but you can buy used copies. So it's Francine Bernier and it's called The Templars Legacy in Montreal, the New Jerusalem. And it has a picture of a stone with a beautiful cross pate that was found in the crypt of a very old church in Montreal. Wow. And we don't know if that church was built around the stone or if the stone was, you know, put there in the 1600s or 1700s by Freemason or someone like that. Yeah, I've got and um, another researcher, if, if you don't mind me prattling no, along go here. Ahead. I was just <laughs> this picture because we were talking about this is what we were talking about that last yeah. time but there's the last thing we were there. talking about last time before yeah before we ran out of yeah. time yep so so this is um just something that i noticed when i was looking 
at um, the map of North America and thinking if Templars could have gone to what is now Montreal and what route they would have followed. And simultaneously, I was reading a book about British Templars it's called The Nice Templar in Britain. And it has a list of Templar castles in the Middle East. So mm -hmm. that would have been, um, so today that's, you know, Israel, Jordan, and I forget the third country. But uh, yeah, they had these castles in the Middle East. Sometimes they built them and sometimes they they kind of inherited them or accepted them from, from other noblemen who were withdrawing from the Holy Land and going back home to Europe. And they, they, you know, they were leaving these castles and fortresses behind and Templars accepted them and started taking care of them. So among these Templar castles were Castle Montreal, Toron, and Destroyed. I don't know how to pronounce Destroyed, maybe. Yeah, I don't either. D-E-S-T-R-O-Y-T. Yeah. or Detroit? I don't know. Yeah, to say. <laughs> French yeah. people, help me out. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it occurred to me that these names are so similar to the names of major cities in North America, namely Montreal, Toronto, and Detroit. So I feel like we should look at this and see if maybe these are the places that uh, 14th century Templars might have passed through yep. after they visited Nova Scotia. It's a great, it's one of those things where, like it you said earlier, a stabhorber, a resupply route to keep going. Yeah, yeah, and, and and it's just something that it's a theory out there. It's a it's an interesting concept that has to be looked into. You have to. I mean, this kind of thing. It's what you know. If you don't, you might be missing something important. And there may be nothing there. It may simply be oh wow, well, weird coincidence. And right. we might even able we might even be able to add a fourth um, location to to this map farther west and that's the wayne murphy site in wisconsin exactly exactly so, yeah. yeah that's I yeah that's coming up too in just a couple of weeks we're going to be uh well we're going oh, to i gotta watch i gotta watch <laughs> i know we're going to be talking yeah. a little bit about it next week but uh you know next saturday uh with team Templar north america and the lost relics guys coming on Perfect. and but when, when i saw that book about this michael bradley's second book mm -hmm. and i saw and i was thinking about this i'm like Boy, this is just too coincidental that this all kind of ties together, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's just, yeah. oh man, yeah, good stuff. <laughs> I'm just so fascinated by it. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that uh, uh, I, I was going to mention two more names if anybody wants to read up on um, potential Templar activity near the Great Lakes. So, one is Francine Bernier and her book about Templars in Montreal. Uh, the other one is uh, Gerard Leduc. He lives in Quebec and he is writing a book, so I can't um, reveal much about it. But um, he did publish an article about Templars and their exploration in North America in the NIRA journal. NIRA is an organization uh, that studies stone edifices and uh, all kinds of strangers in New England. So they are interested in stuff like the so-called American Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. And uh, Terry DeVoe, who often appears on the Curse of Oak Island, he's the yep, president. He's in our group too, yep. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So in one of the NERA journals, NERA is spelled N-E-A-R-A. -A, it's an acronym. So in one of the older um, NERA journals, there's a very nice 
beautiful article by Gerard Leduc, L-E-D-U-C, Gerard Leduc, L-E-D-U-C. And he writes about, uh, he basically lays out the, the bare bones of his, of his theory. And I believe his book will be, you know, an expansion on all, all that. So then there is um, William Mann, um, M-A-N-N, so there's double N, William Mann. He wrote several books about uh, Templars in North America. Uh, for example, Templar Meridians, Templar Sanctuaries. He's a very high-ranking Freemason and a modern Templar. I think he's like the head of the modern Templars um, in the Masonic circles in Ontario. So, um, so, so that's a set of books that you can get and read on Sunday <laughs> tomorrow. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, the third theory was coined by uh, Joan Harris herself. She was very interested in the 1600s, and that's when Sir William Alexander, another Scottish nobleman, came to uh, Nova Scotia to colonize it on behalf of King James I. So he was James I of England, but James VI of Scotland. He was king of both England and, and Scotland. So um, King James sent Sir William Alexander to Nova Scotia, and the goal was to boot out the French settlers who lived in Port Royal, take over Port Royal, and uh, you know start <laughs> living there. They were going to build towns along the coast. They had a lot of people with them coming on. I think James McQuiston said he counted up to 17 ships that came over time to, to Nova Scotia, carrying these Scots. There were a lot of craftsmen about, among them, builders, um, just highly skilled people. So not just nobles who wanted you know, uh, free land in, in the new world, but um, people who actually meant or plans to set up towns and you know start functional communities here unfortunately the scottish um enterprise only lasted maybe 10 years mm -hmm. uh, because in 16 i think they came in 1622 and then in 1632 they got booted out <laughs> um by by the french so karma right mm -hmm. uh yeah um, they booted out the French and then the French booted them out later. So Sir William Alexander apparently had a secret estate built in Uros. That's what James McQuiston found when he was digging into all these uh, historical documents. Right. And James will tell you that a, a Scottish treasure was hidden on Oak Island and New Ross was a place where Sir William Alexander had a secret estate built for himself. Now, interestingly enough, the Mi'kmaq men who um, were friends with Joan Harris, they they told her that, that yes, there was something, some kind of a structure, um, grand structure built in New Ross, but that it was a refuge for a king. And James McQuiston thinks that it was Sir William Alexander who styled himself or thought of himself as uh, the new king of Nova Scotia. But Joan Harris thought that the refuge, a refuge for a king, that that had to do with um, the whole Oliver Cromwell disaster where 
Oliver Cromwell was a parliamentarian who came into power. He wanted to reform the political system and, and get rid of royalty. And he went after um, the royal family big time, like he had murderous intentions. So he ended up giving orders for beheading of King Charles I. And later, people got rid of Oliver Cromwell because he was just too cruel. Mm-hmm. And the country was in chaos. So they were like, well, let's bring back <laughs> royalty, you know. Maybe they weren't perfect, but we kind of know what to expect from them, right? So they brought back uh, Charles II. So Charles was uh, restored to the throne. And I believe it was either Charles I or Charles II who would have needed a refuge, you know, mm-hmm. like get out of town while all your Carmel is on a rampage and then come back <laughs> when people get tired of the maniac and, and uh, want to <laughs> predictable order you know not not perfect order but predictable order so so uh it is possible that uh, somebody was hiding out at neuros in the 1600s and maybe it was even a member of the royal family although i i personally uh can't quite picture something fanciful like that like (laughs) neuros doesn't have a lot to offer to royalty Yeah, if you think about the royal, fa- you know, a royal family living there or something, there's some big, yeah, because what we see over in France and all that, you know, you you get a different opinion of that. And I've never been to New Ross, and I don't know, but you're right; it yeah. may not be the uh, the picture right now. I've heard Port Royal is pretty nice, but right. And so it would have been Sir William Alexander who had uh, interest in in New Ross. He owned the land that Neuros is is standing on, at least from the point of view of, um, you know, um, the, the British Empire, he he was the owner of the land. And, I mean, the land still belonged to the Mi'kmaq, but, but um, Sir William Alexander laid claim to it, and Neuros was absolutely part of, of that. So in, in those documents from the 1600s, it's referred to as merely gash. It's this strange-sounding word, merely gash. And most people say or think that it's totally a Mi'kmaq word, but James McQuiston found a similarly sounding word in Gaelic. So that would have been the language of the Scots. Gaelic is basically a Celtic tongue and Scots would have spoken Gaelic probably still in the 1600s. So if you go to Cape Breton in Nova Scotia, a lot of people there still speak Gaelic. So um there is a word in gaelic that sounds like merely gash and it means um part of an alliance or part of the alliance and to me that would have been an alliance between the scots and the Mi'kmaq. right yep we know that um and again it was james McQuiston that discovered this um a local Mi'kmaq chief was sent to England to meet the King of England. So he was uh, basically on a diplomatic mission. Wow, I didn't know And that. Uh, the, the daughter of, of that same Mi'kmaq chief apparently had a romantic relationship with Sir William Alexander's son, and they had a child. And James McQuiston thinks that that child uh, was Daniel LeBlanc. And there are a lot of LeBlancs in Nova Scotia. So that would have been... Uh, quite something if um, all of that had happened in Neuros. Wow. So um, 
on the old maps of Nova Scotia all the way to early 1700s, mm-hmm. uh, when cartography was on a higher level by then. So maps from the 1700s look, you know, much sharper and much more accurate than uh, maps from 1500s or 1600s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, where one inch of the map covers the entire coast of North America. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So so even on uh, maps from early uh, 1700s, you can see the word merely gash. So it was still used locally and um, the cartographers picked it up. And there was even Merely Gash River depicted on at least one of uh, the French maps from the 1700s. And the Merely Gash River is the Gold River. When you look at it, there's no other way that, that, that that's a different river. So Merely Gash River was Gold River. And if William Alexander owned Merely Gash or laid claim, claims to Merely Gash, then um, Gold River was um, within that domain, right? Wow. Yeah. Oh, and I don't have, I don't think I have a picture of it. And the Gold River runs into Mahone Bay, if I remember correctly, doesn't it? Yeah. So the gold, yes. So um, the mouth of Gold River is in Mahone Bay. And um, if you follow the Gold River north, it will take you to Noros. It literally starts, the river literally starts flowing outside of, of town, outside of uh, Noros. Um, now I would like to mention the Charing Cross. So I said that there's a crossroad in Nuras. There's a part of town that has this major crossroad in, in Nuras, and it's called the Charing Cross. There's actually a sign by the crossroad that said that uh, this is Charing Cross. So um, back in London, there is a Charing Cross as well. And James McQuiston explained this to me. He said that that was the spot where as early as the 1300s, uh, Londoners used that spot to measure distances from. So that was the place from which all of the distances in London from, yeah. were, were measured. It, it was not like in the center of London, but somehow <laughs> they measured distances from it. So it was a very important uh, cartographic point, right? Um, and apparently, William Alexander had a house near Charing Cross. And James thinks that when William Alexander relocated to Nova Scotia, he tried to recreate wow. his old home. And he called Nuras Charing Cross. That, I mean, and, that's uh, not coincidental. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how you can't really put anything else to that. I mean, it has to be that. Yeah. I mean, if he, if he lived, you said he lived near the Charing Cross. Yeah. In he lived near Charing Cross, yeah. And we're actually trying to find out if the distance between um, Sir William Alexander's house in London, so mm-hmm. the London house and the London Charing Cross was the same as the distance between uh, the Charing Cross in Euros and our foundation. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that would be crazy. weird, right? That yeah. would get a positive way. <laughs> That'd be crazy if that turns out to be the same. Oh well, my goodness. And even crazier is this um, Oliver Cromwell, the dreadful parliamentarian, he destroyed Charing Cross. Really? He had it smashed to pieces. And later it was rebuilt. So now it has a statue of King Charles. I don't know, the first or the second. I, I get them confused. Um, but um, he also 
would have destroyed the one in Neuros. So can you imagine how mad this man must have been to destroy Charing Cross uh, in London and to order to do the same, like to pull it down in Neuros. So while the Charing Cross in London was in ruins, the one in Neuros was still standing mm -hmm. um, until Oliver Cromwell came in 1654 and um, destroyed it. Now, he didn't come in person. He sent a guy named uh, Robert Sedgwick and he came with soldiers. Their job was to find any royal supporters in Nova Scotia and probably arrest them or worse. Or take them out. Yeah. Or, or, or kill them. Yep. So Oliver Cromwell was really worried for some reason that Nova Scotia was his hotbed of, uh, you know, loyalists <laughs> who would pose a problem to mm -hmm. his schemes and his plans. Yeah, I was just reading a little bit about him. I just he was just introduced to me by you. Okay. Um, so I got looking into his in, in some, some people, you know, herald him at the time he ended up being dragged out of there and, and, uh, um, taken down. But I mean, he, uh, I guess there was some, and I forget exactly where I saw this, but I guess not that many years ago, he was touted as one of the 10, one of the 10 greatest or something. And I'm thinking, wow, I don't know. I've got to look into this man's history because it didn't sound like he was a very good guy. Um, no, going around. No, I, I, th I think he was one of those men who thought that he could bring about positive change. Mm -hmm. But once he found himself holding this absolute power, he was corrupted by it, and there was no one to to um, stop him or you know to slow him down. Because uh, it, you know, once he removed the king, he didn't answer to anyone, right? right? Exactly. He literally didn't have to answer to anyone. If he saw himself as the savior of the nation, then that probably justified whatever cruel things he ordered people to do. He felt probably morally justified, you know, like um, the end justified the means. Mm -hmm. So well, they, they say right. absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? It does, yep. Yeah, Joe, yeah. Joe corrected me. Thank you, Joe. Just said not one of the greatest. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> okay. yeah, no, I, I was reading I, that. I, and it was like, wait a minute. Is that you? Wait a minute. You're saying how bad this guy was, and now you're telling me, but I obviously read that wrong because I'm like, that can't be right. So, mm -hmm. but I'm going to have to go back and look into that because uh, even though he was, in, and I agree, he was probably very corrupt in, in by absolute power because he didn't have anybody to answer to at that point. Uh, like you said, but I'm going to have to look, go back and, and read up on that a little bit more mm -hmm. because I, and not that I, not that I'd like to read about people that did things like he did, but it's interesting to see how, how far reaching it was as well, you know, to come all the way over to Nova Scotia. Now he didn't come, but to send, you know, soldiers over there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To do yeah. that. I mean, how far reaching was his power at that point? Man, that's crazy. Yeah, that is, so, that's really so, crazy. So, so there was something in Nova Scotia or someone in Nova Scotia that he was worried about. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, um, an artifact was found in Neuraz at the time when Joan Harris lived there, I think, but she never knew about it. And had she known about it, it might have shaped the way that she was looking at, at, at that property. So there's a medallion that was discovered by two boys playing not far from our property as children with uh, Tonka trucks. They're literally just, you know, innocent boys playing in an innocent game. And they found this medallion and they kept it as um, 
as, as a little treasure and they didn't tell anybody about it until um, Rick Lagida rolled into town and they told him. So, <laughs> so this medallion is from the year 1671 and it belongs to the Order of the Garter. The Order of the Garter is a British chivalric order. Mm -hmm. The head of the order is the British monarch. So right now it's Queen Elizabeth II. When you become a knight of the Order of the Garter, um, you get, I think it's called invested. You get in, invested in, into the order and you get this medallion and, and probably some other um, items. The, um, the front of the medallion shows St. George riding a horse, slaying a dragon. And then the back of the medallion, which we don't see right now, has a bunch of um, words on it. And I think it's all in French or Latin. So James McQuiston um, did some deep, deep exploration and research. He probably contacted all the museums and archives he could find uh, that were relevant to his search in England and, and Scotland and maybe even like in Sweden. Because in 16, uh, 1671, there were three such medallions minted right. in three different locations, mm -hmm. probably not from the same mold, but very similar in design. One was given to the King of Sweden, another to the Duke of Saxony, and the third one was given to uh, Sir Christopher Monk, who was like the right hand of uh, of the king at the time the question is how did this medallion uh, find its way to neuros and james mcquiston thinks that he he uh, can explain it and the way he explains it is that sir christopher monk gave it to uh sir william phipps william phipps was born in america in north america so he didn't qualify British knighthood simply because he was a commoner and he was not born uh, on the British Isle. So they couldn't make him a British knight. Mm -hmm. But the king wanted to reward him for his services to the crown. And what uh, William Phipps did uh, for the British king was he um, salvaged gold and other treasure from uh, the shipwreck of La Concepcion. Um, it was a Spanish galleon that sank off the coast of North America, and uh, he found it and got most of the gold off it. And he was able to successfully deliver it to the king to without the king. his crew mutinying. So he promised them, he promised his own crew that if they don't steal the treasure, don't cut his throat, they will get his share of the treasure. So he actually gave his share and away followed through, yeah. to, to, to his own crew. So everybody kept their word. Everything went smoothly. And this treasure was delivered to uh, the British king, who then wanted to reward um, William Phipps for his services. But they couldn't make him a knight. So they gave him this medallion um, that previously belonged to Christopher Monk. And so William Phipps went back to Nova Scotia. He was sent there to recover more treasure. And this is where it gets interesting because he went to Port Royal, but he was also on the on the South Shore. So he went all over the place. Mm -hmm. And he was he was again tasked with finding treasure. Well, what kind of treasure 
was there left to find, right? Was it the treasure of Oak Island? Mm-hmm. And Probably. what was he doing in your office with this medallion? And why did he allow himself to, to lose it, right? Mm-hmm. So it just reads like a like a novel. And even James McQuiston admits that it's too fantastic to be true. But then he looks yeah. at the historical documents. He checks his sources. He talks to, you know, archaeologists and historians in Scotland and Britain. And they all, you know, agree with him. So I feel like... <laughs> His theory is um, really well researched. And he told me that if you take away half of it, the other half is still solid. So he he definitely cannot be um, overlooked or easily doubted. Because if you want to doubt James McQuiston, you have to come up with a counter argument. You can't just say, well, what about this? You know, what about that? Well, um, what are you basing your doubt on? Right. 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 So yeah, very knowledgeable. This, is, this this is this is very exciting. It is. Um, right. So somebody was poking around Neuros, um, maybe in the late 1600s, and it could have been William Phipps, and somehow he he lost it there, or maybe he he gave it to to someone. And I feel like it might have been given to the Mi'kmaq people. There is a band of Mi'kmaq people living by the Gold River. Oh. They they were the ones who would have met any European explorers, um, you know, going through the swamps and the <laughs> woods <laughs> <laughs> that used to be near us. So, yeah, hmm. yeah. Now he was also now Christopher Monk mm-hmm. uh, was also part of the Knights of the Garter. No, he would not have been a Knight of the Garter. Uh, Sorry, Christopher Monk was, yes. So Christopher Monk was, but once he gave up the medallion, gave it to William Phipps, the knighthood or the membership in the Order of the Garter would not have transferred to William Phipps. Right. Right. Yeah. The last last theory uh, is actually one of mine. (laughs) All right. Let's hear it. I, I try so hard to not favor a theory. I, I really am open-minded and I, I want to consider all options. If somebody can satisfactorily explain neurostomy and back up their claims or even their doubts, mm-hmm. um, I'm here. You know, send me a message. Call <laughs> me. <laughs> send me a letter. I want to know. So the last um, theory th- that I am considering is that if all of this is true, that it was a refuge and there was a stone well in existence prior to 1816 or 1817, and the Mi'kmaq people were there when all this happened, and they let somebody live there. That, that's another thing that right. we have to be clear about. They would have had to allow, permit somebody to live there. Yep. Uh, so... So obviously, if somebody successfully stayed at Nuras uh, without uh, a military force, let's put it that way, it would have had to be someone who had good relationship with the Mi'kmaq, somebody that um, they did not feel threatened by, somebody they maybe even liked mm-hmm. and could have worked with, cooperated with, right? And that somebody, I think, was French Acadians. So Nova Scotia used to be called Acadia. 
right. um, on, on the first European maps. And the French settlers that relocated there started calling themselves Acadians. So we talk about them as uh, French Acadians. And there was a time when they got into uh, big trouble with the British. So Nova Scotia, unfortunately, was kind of passed between France and Britain right. several times. Mm -hmm. In the end, it, it ended up as a, as a British colony. And the British had all this French population on their hands. And um, they gave them the option to stay or to leave. Originally, I thought that all the French Acadians were loaded onto ships and sent away from Nova Scotia, that That's there was no, no other yeah. option. But I discussed it with Terry DeVoe, mm -hmm. uh, who himself is descended from one of those original <laughs> Acadian families. Wow. And he explained to me that, no, it wasn't like that. Um, yes, there was a decision made, like a unilateral decision made by the governor of Nova Scotia at the time, who did this without consulting with his own king. So he did it on his own, like a rogue decision and then after the fact he informed um you know the british king that hey you know I, I booted out all the french farmers and he got into a lot of trouble over that the british king was not happy that 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 this happened but by then it was too late mm -hmm. so the french acadians were given an option to either leave relocate uh, they were sent to boston originally and uh, boston was supposed to take them but that didn't go well either so it's a very complicated story but some of them stayed behind and some of them i think even escaped from you know from uh, their imprisonment and their ships and they were hiding out um in inland they were hiding out um you know in the in the swamps and in the woods and frankly i think uh, they were taken in by the mikla who had good relationship with right. um with these um, French Acadians, mm -hmm. there were a lot of trappers who learned uh, this trade from the Mi'kmaq, you know, how to hunt um, and take pelts. So they even intermarried. So there were marriages between the French Acadians and, and uh, the Mi'kmaq. So there was a whole generation of, of, of offspring, right, that were part French, part Mi'kmaq. They were at home in Nova Scotia. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to go to Boston. They they like their home. They want to right. stay behind. Exactly. And I think that um, initially uh, the British let them stay, the ones that wanted to stay. But eventually they were like, no, let's like let's do a you know like one more sweep and get rid of the last ones too. And I feel like it could have been some French Acadians on the run from the British hiding out at Neuros with the help of the Mi'kmaq people. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Totally makes sense. Why not? And like you said, you were going to want to stay there. I would want to stay, especially if I had, you know, and like you said, the intermarriage with some of the Mi'kmaq people, yep. um, you're going to, you're not going to want to leave. I no. wouldn't want to leave. I mean, you have now relatives that are through marriage that are part of, you know, both the Mi'kmaq people. So and, yeah, and, 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 and they would help hide you too. Yeah. And children, children um, are very precious you know, to both sides, right? And uh, you got grandparents who don't on, on, on their grandchildren. They don't want to say goodbye right. to them and send them that's to cool. uncertain fate. Of course, they're going to help out and hide you if, if you need to, you know, stay low. 
for for a little while. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, the British military would not have canvassed um, the interior of Nova Scotia right away, that they would have focused on the coast mm -hmm. and later they would have penetrated inland, but you know, that might have been like decades later. So um, I hope that one day I will have clarity, like absolute clarity when, <laughs> when it comes to Andros. And if right. anybody out there has information, um, including the uh, Mi'kmaq oral tradition, I would like to know. I would. I want to understand. I'm at that point where I accept that Neuroz, um is a strange place. And while I accept the official recorded history, my gut feeling tells me there is more and I'm willing to explore the what's under the surface. Mm -hmm. And the key to that is people, people who remember what happened and people who remember what happened would be the Mi'kmaq or descendants of, of these French Acadians who might have a story in their family. You know, there's uh, the Nos family. Um, I believe they live in Lunenburg now. It's spelled, their name is spelled N-A-U-S-S, -S, Nos or Naus. And they have um, a beautiful tradition in their family that they were invited to come to Nova Scotia with the purpose of building this estate at Nuras. And they even have the blueprints to really? what that looked like. Yes. And it was John Noss who talked about it to Joan Harris while she was still alive. So I need to um, open that channel. I was going to say, you need to yeah, get and start, you start uh, speaking with the, with the Noss family. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Oh, got to you, you would love to see that blueprint, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. You've got to look into that. That's oh. fascinating. Because that would just totally, uh, you know, yeah, it, somebody typed that on there. N a u s s, correct? That was yeah. Henry Henry Dewitt, mm -hmm. actually. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Now, that's I, I also I, I want to you know read an objective and consider all the pros and cons and all all the possibilities. Mm -hmm. So um, if if the more critically minded uh, people in your audience want to learn uh, about neuros, but you know from from like a very strict, hard-nosed academic point of view, there's a very good paper that was written by Vanessa Smith, who I believe was a, was a student at St. Mary's University. She wrote a paper <laughs> called The Ruins at Neuras, The Genesis and Resolution of an Archaeological Mystery. It's an excellent paper, and I like it, honestly. Uh, she analyzes um, all the legends associated with Neuros and subjects them to very objective academic study. She mentions all the most relevant artifacts that were found there. She lists uh, all the various theories. And she also has a very good list of, I'm actually holding it right here, of references. So um, if you're one of those people who likes to read the source material, like where mm -hmm. she got her ideas from, there's a long list of um, of references at the end of her paper. What so was I read, that I, called, yeah? um, it's called the Ru the ruins at Neuros, 
The Genesis and Resolution of an Archaeological Mystery by Vanessa Smith of St. Mary's University. And you can actually find it online. So if you Google Neuros and Vanessa Smith, the paper will, will come up in PDF and you can probably print it and um, study it. It's really good. And uh, it was recommended to me by Terry Duvall. So, wow. and he was right. It's an excellent paper. I, I just put it, that up in the... In the, the, the only thing that... Um, Vanessa Smith does not mention there is the medallion from 1671. And I think it's because she had no knowledge of it because the two boys who, you know, grew into men mm -hmm. kept it a uh, very tight secret until I uh, <laughs> came to town. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. This is, this has been, I, and I know we could keep on going and going and going. It's just uh, some, some, even, even some notes here that I took down, you know, just even like the La Concepcion. I mean, there's the, mm -hmm. that could go on into uh, a whole nother hour of talk about just that alone. And I, and there's so much, I mean, even like the Vikings and how they were Christianized when they became Christians and they became the Norse and, and talking about the, uh, there was something that you had mentioned about them over in um, Scotland and taking refuge in a mound, a, a burial mound, I guess. And, and they oh yeah, okay. If I may, I will. If I'll, I, if I may, I will I'll put okay. that story out real quick. I mean, that's I, I know you've got some uh, Viking uh, fans out yes. there. Not one <laughs> I'm of them. One. Yes, I want to. So. Um, the Norse, once they became Christianized, um, but they they joined the Crusades. Um, they traveled to Jerusalem and they fought as Crusaders. And then they returned home, right? So that was a terribly long journey for them to go, let's say, from Orkney all the way to Jerusalem, right. fighting the Crusades, survive the, the horrors, mm -hmm. and then return home in one piece, right? In Orkney, there is a mound, um, which uh, is probably, I honestly don't know how old it is, but probably several thousand years. It definitely predates Vikings. And they broke into it during a storm to take shelter or refuge mm -hmm. inside the mound because it's very co well constructed and impervious to storms. And they probably also thought there could be some treasure in it, right? They probably thought it was... You know, you know, the grave of some great chieftain. Awesome. So they spent a night or two in the mound and they um, carved some runic inscriptions on, on, on the wall of, of the mound. And basically it says, um, you know, we are crusaders and we are traveling with our Earl. Earl was called Jarl mm -hmm. to Jerusalem. And, you know, we have taken shelter in this mound. So we know from that inscription that, yes, there were crusaders in Orkney, who then traveled to Jerusalem and presumably returned. So this would have been in the 1100s, 1153, I think. I think is what they were talking about. Yeah, there, there, there were several crusades. So I, I yeah. honestly don't know which particular crusade these Orkney men participated in, but they did. And um, once I came across an article um, which was very well written and it recounted the story of several thousand Norse crusaders who were returning from Jerusalem. They were returning home, and I believe they were going to Norway. 
they might have been from other kingdoms too, but you know, maybe they traveled together. So let's say they were Scandinavian crusaders on the way home from Jerusalem. They reached um, Gibraltar. And after that, they fell off the surface of the earth. We don't know what happened to them. There is apparently no record of their homecoming. Right. Imagine if several thousand successful crusaders came home to Norway, the king would have welcomed them as oh, you know, heroes. heroes. And the church would have been also, you know, very impressed by by them. So why is there no record of them coming home? So the authors of that article wondered, they posed a question, did they get blown off course and ended up somewhere in the Caribbean or maybe even in North America? And then they would have been forced to find their way home by following the East Coast of North America. And then, you know, um, I imagine they would have found their way to Nova Scotia, eventually Newfoundland, and find the, you know, old Viking settlements there, <laughs> yep. get, uh, you know, resupplied, restocked, and then go to uh, Greenland, Iceland, Orkney, and, you know, from there, Norway. So a long way home, a long detour. <laughs> and by that time, they would have forgotten, you know, everybody else would have, you know, yeah. Yeah, five years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that's crazy. And, and that's yeah, the, and and in in those carvings that they left behind or graffiti, it was actually you know, I when I was doing some reading on that, it came up as the and I and I know I I Michaux's, Michaux's runes and they called it graffiti, uh Viking graffiti. Um first excavated in 1861. Uh they went down through the top according to the Orkneyinga saga. 1800 years earlier, the Vikings took shelter in this mound uh, during a storm led by Earl Harald. Uh, they, and they say on here Christmas of 1153, but um, oh, okay. they were so making their way from now, according okay. to, and, and again, they may not be exactly right because, like you said, they weren't sure if they were returning or going or whatever. Um, but they, they, in there, they said making their way from Stromness to the uh, parish of Firth. So, okay. But again, I you know you're not not exactly sure if if all those you know and, and I think they put some speculation into that as well. But um, but yeah, those and they found that that graffiti they called it graffiti written on the walls in there, um, which means that they were definitely there and they were they were telling everybody, hey, we kind of broke in here and you know and <laughs> and uh, and hung out for a while. So man, I, there's just so much. I mean, it's it's you guys have all you and James and and Gretchen and so many different people that we've talked to have given me so much information and, and built a, a, a hunger inside of me to know more about what's taken place. Uh, in it, makes, it makes two of us. Jeff. I mean, I, I never thought about it until my interest in Oak Island came about. And now I just want to get more and more and more information about this. And, and, and yeah. the Norse, you know, the Vikings becoming the Norse and coming over and, and in Greenland and, there's just so much to it. And and now looking at the possibility that the Templars came over and then, they, you know, and again, going to uh, Team Templar North America, talking about them making their way all the way through to Wisconsin. It, it's just so fascinating. I, I just can't get enough of it right now. It's it's and for you to come on here today like this again, a second time and share this this wealth of knowledge that you have gained on this. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And I and I 
your theory there. I like that. I think there's, I think there's some good credence to that. I, I, I really do. I mean, it makes total sense that, you know, not all of them left. And there was also the little piece about, I know we're running later. We're after two hours now, but uh, you know, talking about some of them that were taken down to Louisiana. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and basically, and we know that's uh, there's some French, a lot of French uh, influence down in Louisiana. Um, so some of them, obviously the ones that did leave Nova Scotia, uh, and they ended up down in, in Louisiana. So that's a whole nother story in itself right there. And that's something that James also taught. And you, you alluded to it last time we talked in part one, mm -hmm. um, as well. So, and, uh, man, it's just, there's just so much, there's just so much information. And I, we're going to have to continue this. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to have a part three. Oh man. I mean, there's no, just, so much, but I, I really, yeah, I, I just, well, I, I really, I, will, I would like you to, um, talk to my husband Tim one day about Nolan's Cross because he's got his own ideas about what it is really? and what it what it does. Yes. Really? Oh, yeah. we, we gotta have him join you on the show then. We have both I, of you I sitting side that. by side. I gotta hear this. I I gotta mm -hmm. hear this. You'll have to put yeah. me in contact with him. I want to talk to him about that. That's yeah, well, you know, normal couples talk about what's for dinner. We talk about oh man. What? No, I'm just crossing. What's that? I know. Isn't he Derek, right? <laughs> Eric is his name? What's that? Your husband's name is Eric? No, Tim. Uh, Tim Eric, Eric, Eric is my brother. Eric oh, okay. Brother. That's what I heard, Eric. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> man, I, yeah, there's just, I got, I got to talk to, I got to talk to Tim, man. That's, uh, or both of you together. This, uh, you know what, Jack, we got to just, we got to make a trip to Nova Scotia. We got to go. Can we come <laughs> over for dinner? <laughs> Yeah, I, well, um, I'll swing by the grocery store and I'll pick up some stuff. And we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll be, we'll, we will oh, be there. Oh my goodness, that's uh, that's, that's fascinating. Good. And I know it's, that uh, it's fascinating you know, to be able to sit down and talk in person. Oh all my gosh, I know. I we could, I, it would go all night. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours. Well, I did want to bring up your uh, your books again. Right here are the books that okay. you've uh, you've written. We got uh, Nikki and the Lost Templar. We got Nikki and the Lost Star, and mm -hmm. Nikki. Uh, and the lost sword. Lost sword. Yeah. Yes. So, so okay. these are fiction books, and they are geared uh, for children between the ages of, I would say, ten and thirteen. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to read the first book, you should be at least ten years old. And in each, in each story, the the main character he ages by year. So in the first book, he's twelve, then he's thirteen, then he's fourteen. So the third book could be written by older. Um, by teenagers, for mm -hmm. sure. And um, I write fiction, but I weave into it elements of history and mythology. So I do talk about Templars, Vikings, and their exploits around the world and what they might have left in Nova Scotia and why they even came here. So you're giving a little bit of history along with that. That's fascinating. I, I do. I believe <laughs> that a good story is a gateway to so many things it could be a gateway to history you know right now all the people that watch your podcast uh they're probably ordering history books from from amazon or other bookstores right now right I have you know like and so where did that sudden interest come from where did the hunger to know that need to understand come from right yep. so so I think the, the Curse of Oak Island has inspired millions of people to suddenly start looking into history and thinking very hard about 
what happened, what we were taught in school, what is really true, and and just open up their mind and consider various possibilities. They say history is written by the victors. Yes. Right. Yes. That's right. So, so there's no way that there is only one definitive explanation. Depending on which side of the conflict you talk to, you will hear a different version of events. Right. And that's precisely what, um, you know, how I look at Oak Island and Euros. I want to know all, all the theories and all the possibilities so that I don't miss out something important, an important clue. Oh, absolutely. And and that's something that, and again, we go back to the history. When I was in school, history was like, oh, come on. Do we have you to get fell asleep. Class, you were you know? one of those students who probably <laughs> like leaned on his desk and very surreptitiously yeah. took a nap, right? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. For, for I was. me, it wasn't until I got in college, you got a professor that really got got me charged in history. Mm-hmm. And I, that, made, that made, he was so passionate about it. Came that out into the classroom. Right there. The teacher make can make all the difference in making it interesting and fun to learn. Yeah. And uh, and apparently I didn't have that teacher. <laughs> I that's where I got my that's where I got my passion for history. Yep. It was through mm-hmm. a professor that was so charged that it just it motivated me. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yes. I, I was fortunate to have a wonderful history teacher in high school, but um I, I always had that draw to 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 the past and i needed to understand my own roots where my people came from Mm -hmm. uh, just to make sense of who i am and where i am headed and also to understand other people because if you studied their history especially if they were the ones who who wrote that book and gave you their perspective then you can better appreciate what they went through and who they are today, despite of what happened to them in the past, yep. right? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and on Oak Island, we not only see a revival of history, but science. And I love how they yes. fused history with science, modern science. I mean, how cool is that? Right? It is so cool. It really is, man. And I, and I talked to those guys about that, you know, and that's, you know, every time I've had one of them, you know, like, like uh, Steven or Laird or one of them guys on the show or anyone that has it, 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 you're right. Fusing those two things together to come up with solid answers is the way to go. And it just, it fascinates me. And you're right. It, it, this brought about, you know, now I do like his, I think maybe as we get older, we m- may like history even more. And I do, but now this has focused my, my attention on, on new Ross and Acadia and and you know the the going through the French and the British and the French and the British and the and the Mi'kmaq people themselves because I have friends that are Native Americans uh, in the United States and so I understand how you know their traditions and like you something you said earlier about the fact that when they have a story that's passed down through legend after legend you know through their families it's a story of what they've seen and experienced. And it's, it's not something that they generally would just make up and say, oh, okay, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to say it, folks, I'm sorry. But when they talk about like even meeting people from other worlds or whatever the Native Americans do, these are from experiences they've had over the years and they've passed it along. So it's not just a made up story. It's actual history of their people that they have passed along to their heritage. And when they, when they 
tell you that story today, or if you go to them and ask them about it, they are able to explain the meaning yes. of it. Yes. Within their the context of their culture, of their tradition, because it's not disconnected. You know, I can pick up a book about Greek yeah. history and read about it, but it feels alien. It feels distant. Unless I talk to Greek people themselves and ask their opinion, uh, I'm kind of reading it out of context. I don't understand the context, right? Mm -hmm. Or if I read a book about uh, ancient Sumeria or Mesopotamia, which is modern Iraq, there are no Sumerians left that I could go to and compare notes with them and have them explain to me, what does this mean? What is this artifact? What did you mean when you did this or said that, right? What is the meaning of the name of this place or this person? But with native people, the context is still here. They are the living, breathing history. They still have that in them and around them. So why not go to them? Why not ask them? Exactly. To please explain, help us understand what happened here. How how do you see it? What did it mean to you? Mm -hmm. Can you add to what we know and take it seriously? Or correct what we know or what we it, thought we knew. There that you go. Know. Correct what we know. Right. We can't be, um, you know, like we can't have blinders on. We can't look at it through just one set of eyes, one perspective. We absolutely must see it from the other perspective and accept that perspective and value it and respect it. I said before that to me, um, oral tradition of the Mi'kmaq people is as good, as solid yep. and bulletproof as an artifact sitting on the shelf of some museum. That artifact is disconnected from the context. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. Right? The yes. thread is gone. But right. the oral tradition, the context is still there. All you mm -hmm. have to do is... Um, Talk to them, and you know, hopefully they they will they will talk to you. Mm -hmm. I understand if they wouldn't want to talk to me, right. but that's I hope that one true. day they will. So, yep, that's awesome. Well, Alessandra, thank you so very much for coming back and joining us on the show today. And I gotta say, too, folks, if you haven't seen, uh, Alessandra has done a lot of uh, of interviews herself with cast members of Oak Island and James McQuiston and just the and Dwight. <laughs> Do you want to show a picture of Dwight? I yeah. sent you a picture of him uh, bedecked as a Templar knight. Did you? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, I got to bring that up real quick. Hang on. Don't okay. I got to yeah. bring that up. Oh, let's see. I got to find it here. Yeah. So, uh, and I tell you that if you go ahead and tell them while I'm pulling this up where they can yeah. find your information I, in the podcast that you've done. Uh, so I sell my books at um, a local trade show, which is called Saltscapes Expo. It's, it's the biggest trade show in um, Nova Scotia, maybe even um, Atlantic Canada. And I uh, go there almost every year and I have a booth with my books and uh, Dwight is my promoter. He normally dresses as a pirate and he's very tall. And if you add the, the tricorn hat, he literally stands above, like he stands, a, sticks above the crowd, right? So people see him. I can, I can relate yeah. to that. Yeah. So that's him dressed as a Templar Knight. So that's here awesome. we, I didn't know that was him. I was like, who? Is, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here he was uh, helping me make a um, book trailer, and it was for my first book, uh, Nikki and the Lost Templar. So I said, 
I have a character who is the ghost of a Templar knight that was left behind in Nova Scotia to guard the treasure. Awesome. Can you please dress up? Uh, <laughs> and he said, sure. And and I thought that he would come in some, you know, cheap cloak. <laughs> I was gonna ask, where did he get the costume for this? Well, actually, it's a it's a costume that was used in a movie, The Kingdom of Heaven. And mm -hmm. he he even has the the sword, and I think the sword might have come from a movie about um, Braveheart. I don't know if it was from the Braveheart, but uh, yeah. So, so he's got a real Templar costume from the movie Kingdom of Heaven, and and a sword that also came from from the movie. And he's a great guy. Yeah, I, I tell you what, and I watched it. It was so I know you were struggling at the beginning, but because he stayed in character. You know, for so yeah. long with these pirates of Halifax, and uh, it, it was great. It was really good, folks. If you haven't seen uh, Alessandra's uh, uh, shows that she's done, her podcasts that she's done, you've got to check them out. They're really, really good. And well, uh, um, is the, great too. The, the YouTube channel, of course, I have these um, interviews on my website, adventuresofnikki.com. And I also have a YouTube channel called Templar Island. But even if you just look up um, the names, James McQuiston or Dwight Parker or yeah, yep. Wayne Murphy, they, they will, they will pop they up. Will so pop most, up. most of the interviews have to do with Oak Island or Templars. But I will soon have a second YouTube channel for my readers, so for children and teenagers. Where I will be uploading um, my audiobooks. I had them narrated by a professional Hollywood actor, oh, wow. Aaron Landon. Really? He's wow. amazing. He does all the voices, like he imitates Ravens. Uh, he can do accents, so he speaks with yeah. a French accent at times. And uh, yeah, so all that will be on YouTube, and that channel will be called Adventures of Nikki. We're just um, um, getting it ready. So. Oh man, I'm going to be watching for sure. That's great <laughs> stuff. I really do. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by your work. You've done some great stuff. And folks, don't forget uh, that uh, uh, Alessandra is going to be co-hosting with me uh, on May 8th with uh, Corian Mole and Christopher Morford. And uh, so they're going to be coming back and sharing. Their, we'll probably talk a little bit about uh, what they just, you know talked about last time when they, when they were on the Curse of Oak Island and uh, the presentation that they did. Uh, they'll talk about some of that, but they're also working on some new research that they're going to be sharing with us. And I'm so thankful and, wow. and that you are going to, yes, I know. I can't wait. And you're going to be here as my co-host with them. And I'll send you some information. Don't worry that they, they, they've shared with me. Um, I'll get that over to you so you can be prepared, but, uh, you guys, well, you, you got to check this out, people. I'm telling you, well, they are going to have to consider James's, um, discovery or revelation about the left arm of Nolan's cross and how they can explain it from their point of view. So I, I will be paying attention to that one. Yeah, this is going to be good. So don't, don't, uh, that's on May 8th. I've got to, uh, let me just double check. I'm pretty sure okay. it's May 8th. Yes, yeah. May 8th when they're coming on and, uh, yeah. Corinne Mullen, okay. Christopher Morford. So yeah. And I tell you what, yeah. And Jack is honored to, you know, offered to he step aside and let you, uh, cause he knows that we, we often have uh, some guest hosts, uh, co-hosts. Uh, Thank you, Jack. Here. Yeah. Oh, you're very welcome. Okay. So, uh, you yeah. be a chance to be a spectator and learn more. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So, it doesn't hurt. You know, I have enjoyed this tremendously. I've oh, had yeah. both of your time. I've learned so much. I've, so honored you're here. Yep. Thank you. Thank, yes. you. Thank you. Thank you so much for and, coming. Uh, 
Yes, well, I had a lot of fun too. And I apologize to um, exceeding the two hours. Oh, no, no, it's all right. We're <laughs> fine. We're fine. All right. Uh, just too all much right. to talk about. There is just so much. Anyway, thanks so much, folks, for being here with us today. I'm going to wrap this up and uh, let you get on with your uh, your Saturdays. But thank you so much for being here. And if you don't mind, like I said, give us a subscribe down there on the YouTube side. Let us know how we're doing. We really appreciate that thank so much. Good, goodbye, Jeff, Jack, Linda, Jen, and everybody in the audience, who uh, all the people who were patient and uh, willing to <laughs> soak up all this stuff. So. Yep, it's been a great afternoon. Thank you again so much. And folks, thank you so much. We'll see you on Wednesday night. All right, have a good okay, week. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for joining us for this second part with Alessandra Nadovari. And you can watch these uh, videos live when we live streamed them. Uh, they are out on our YouTube channel at jfree906. And if you'd like to help support the show, you can do that also. We have a Patreon channel, which is also jfree906. Thank you all for listening and hope you have a great day. Bye-bye now.